If you have a Bible, I would invite you to open it to Second uh, Corinthians chapter number four. Second Corinthians chapter number four. Uh, we'll spend a little bit of time there uh, tonight as we study God's word. Um, we have read through First Corinthians recently. Now we've jumped into Second Corinthians and. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the letters to the Corinthians always make me feel better about my own life because I realize at least in certain contexts, I'm doing better than someone else did. And so uh, lots of chaos happening in the church at Corinth. So a lot of good reading that's been happening, um, a lot of good challenges from the word and just some opportunities to kind of wake up a little bit in our faith and and, uh, be challenged to what the Lord is asking us to do. As I was reading this week and was settling in on a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I I had this thought about um, how many of you, you may resonate with this, this may have happened at some point in your life, but did did you ever have that moment where your kid, or maybe it was someone else's kid, you know, you were at, you know, some Christmas get together or whatever it was, but you discovered that your kid was more entertained by the box that the toy came in than the actual toy, right? Like some of you have that, you know, had that experience, maybe there's, there's videos of this happening where parents have documented this because it was funny enough to share with the world where all this stress went in, all this expense went in, all this labor went in forever the night before. And, um, you know, it was to put together some elaborate, you know, whatever it was, and then only to find out that your kid enjoyed, you know, the box or whatever it was more than, um, the actual thing. And so it's always funny kind of to see those reactions, to watch that parent of whatever, you know, whatever kid who's loving the $1 packaging over the actual item uh, that was purchased. Now, this isn't how any of us would typically act uh, when we're buying something or when we're, when we're looking for something, right? Like in our day and age where we order things all the time off the internet and we're waiting for them to arrive, none of us realize that when we see that package we've been waiting on at the front door or the mailbox has it or, you know, Alexa is flashing green because Amazon's trying to let you know the package has been delivered somewhere and so now you're scurrying to try to figure out where it's been left or where it's at. None of us, whenever we see you know, what, whatever that, that box is or whatever that packaging is, none of us are excited because of the box. We're excited because of what we know is inside the box, right? Now, this is true in so many instances besides just maybe, you know, something that was delivered to your house. I think about um, when you get food from a restaurant, it's certainly going to need to be in some kind of box or bag or packaged in some way so that you can carry it to your house. But the container, the box, the bag, whatever's holding it isn't what you're happy to have, right? You're not looking at the Raisin Cane's styrofoam box drooling because you want to gnaw on the box, right? No, you're thinking about the cane sauce or the toast or the crinkly fries or the Man, I'm hungry um, in this moment. No, like you're thinking about what's inside. As you arrive home, your family isn't waiting for the bag. They're waiting for, uh, they're not waiting for the to-go boxes. Of course, that's not what they're looking forward to. They're waiting for the contents. They're waiting for what's inside. It's the contents of the box that matter. Now, this is a good reminder, this this idea, uh, this principle that the container doesn't matter as much as the contents. This is a good reminder for us who follow Jesus. We're like the box. Now, don't don't get crazy. I'm not saying that you don't matter or you should be tossed into a trash can like the wrapping paper from a Christmas present. That's not my it's not my goal. However, I am saying that what we contain 
is so much more important than ourselves, right? We are no longer the focus. The focus is what's on the inside. The focus is the gospel that we carry. And this is exactly what Paul is explaining to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. I want to read a couple verses to you and then we'll jump into why the contents are much more important than the container. Here's what Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 4. We'll start with verse number 1. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful segment of scripture. Lots of words, lots of descriptions, lots of picture to what's happening with the gospel. Really what I think Paul's trying to get us to understand is that the contents on the inside are much more valuable than the container. You say, Danny, why do you say that? Here's what he says in verse seven. But we have this treasure in jars of clay To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is not just an idea of fast food. It's not just an idea of an Amazon package showing up at your doorstep. This is the idea that each of us get to live in knowing that what we have in the gospel, what we carry, what's on the inside is so much more powerful than we are ourselves. I want to show you this, this picture that Paul paints for us as we think about what's on the inside. Let me show you this first, the ministry of the gospel. This is one of the reasons why the gospel on the inside is so much more important than the container on the outside. Look back at verse one. Paul said, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. This ministry, the ministry of the gospel. What a privilege we now have as followers of Jesus to share the gospel. You say, Danny, what is the gospel? It is the good news about Jesus Christ, right? We were once dead and lost, condemned to a place of no hope, but Jesus made a way for everything to be changed. We can go from death to life in a moment. Why? Because of Jesus. And now this is our ministry, the ministry of the gospel. Now he points out a couple things that I just think are fascinating. The first one is his description of the ministry. It's a merciful ministry. This is what Paul would point out when he says, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Now I think Paul is really reflecting back on what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We read this as well recently, but I just want to remind you what they were. This is verses four through six. Paul wrote, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. 
Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. In other words, the container is not that big of a deal. It's not about me. It's not about you. We're not claiming anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. We get to be a part of the merciful ministry of the gospel. We get to now be the containers that carry something that valuable. Now, listen, Paul knew this particular truth of mercy more than most. He couldn't have been a minister without mercy. You remember this, but Paul was killing Christians and he was extremely far from God. He wasn't looking for God, but God was looking for him. Is that not what mercy is? None of us were looking for him. The ministry of the gospel was not on the forefront of our minds. What was, was God screaming out over and over again, he's coming for us. This is why Paul talks about this undeserved favor from God. He described it like this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Listen to this. He said, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He says it again in verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, but I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Friends, should we not be the same? Without the mercy of God, where would each of us in this room tonight actually be? His mercy is all we have. We see his mercy, not just in our lives and not just in Paul's, but all throughout scripture. We could read about it way back in the days of uh, the Exodus when Israel was spared from the hands of the Egyptians. As a matter of fact, I love this passage so much. I want to read it to you. It's from Exodus chapter three, verses seven through nine. Listen to this. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to do a good and to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the the Parasites. That was weird. The Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold... The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. I can't get away from this moment of him saying, I've heard their cries, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. Is that not a picture of mercy? What about Nineveh back in the days of Jonah? Remember Jonah when he's sitting under that little flower and he's all mad because God spared the people of Nineveh? Do you remember what he said to God? He's like, God, I'm not surprised by this. Here's what he says. He says, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Listen, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Isn't that the God we serve? Matter of fact, God sits on a throne that is described multiple times in scripture as the mercy seat. 
Listen to this from the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 16. He says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, the throne of mercy, that we may receive mercy, that we may find grace to help in time of need. Ministry of the gospel is beautifully described as a merciful ministry. Can I show you another way it's described, though? Not just a merciful ministry. It's a mighty ministry. That's why Paul writes the words, We do not lose heart. What a testimony to the gospel. What a testimony the apostles are to this reality, including the apostle Paul. I mean, certainly I would have thought there were plenty of times that it would have been easier to give up and to back down, but they never did. You can read in Acts chapter four, Peter and John being charged not to speak in the name of Jesus and arrested and threatened. You can read again in Acts chapter 5 as they're arrested again, and this time they're beaten. They are charged not to speak in the name of Jesus, but we know that did not stop them. I think about the willing death of Stephen for the name of Jesus in Acts chapter 7. I think about the persecution that was brought on by Paul before he became a believer. I remember Paul's own description about his own sufferings later in this letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's how Paul describes it. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. A lot of dangers Paul experienced. I think for me, I would be tempted to give up. But this doesn't seem to be the case with the ministry of the gospel. It's too mighty to be stopped. I can never, I can never think about anything other than what Jesus said in Luke 19.40 when he told the people, I tell you, even if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Why? That is such the ministry of the gospel. It is certainly merciful. It is certainly mighty. But can I show you something else? It's also a meaningful ministry. Meaningful. Paul writes, look back at verse 2. But we have now renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I love how Paul describes this. There's no disgraceful. There's no underhanded ways. There's no cunning attempts to trick people into following Jesus. You know what the word disgraceful in this context means? It means the word shame. As in, we should always be ashamed of trying to lure someone into a relationship with Jesus outside of the ministry of the gospel. You know what the word cunning means? It means craftiness. You know who else was described with this type of craftiness? The Pharisees were when Jesus described their own trickery. Listen, Paul's clear. He never tried to tamper with God's word. He never tried to manipulate the word of God to cater to a particular group of people for an emotional or any other type of response that wasn't from God. As a matter of fact, earlier when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he told them clearly, I didn't come with lofty speech or lofty wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
say, Daniel, what's he talking about? He's talking about the ministry of the gospel. That was enough for people's lives to be changed forever. It was merciful. It was mighty. It was meaningful. One that needed nothing else because it is the power of God. This is how he put it to the church at Rome. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You say, Danny, why are the content so much more important than the container? Well, I think, first of all, it's because of the ministry of the gospel. Knowing that that is what we carry. That is what we are tasked to do. That is what our commission is. What more could we ever desire? But I want to show you something else. Why the contents are more important than the container. And it's not the ministry of the gospel, but the monsters of the gospel. It's kind of a weird way to word that, isn't it? The monsters of the gospel. You say, Danny, the gospel has monsters? No. But it has monsters that stand in opposition to what it wants to do. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me show the first one. The first monster is the veil. This is what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, I want you to embrace something for a moment because these next two verses are some of the saddest truths of the entire New Testament. The brokenness of our world and our sin hide the truth of the gospel message. This is why Paul wrote, it is veiled to those who are perishing. This is one of the monsters of the gospel. We're blinded to the truth and reality of Jesus because of our sinfulness. The word for veiled means to cover, means to hide. And that's exactly what the sin nature of the world tries to do. It tries to cover, it tries to hide the gospel. I was reading this week, one of my favorite commentary writers, he wrote about this veil and here's how he described it. He said, people reject the gospel for a whole variety of reasons. Some find an escape from it in the theory of evolution, as did T.H. Huxley, the friend and popularizer of Darwin. He saw in Darwin's theory a working hypothesis for atheism. Some, Some flee from the Bible to psychoanalysis, hoping to find in Sigmund Freud a savior from both scripture and themselves. Freud himself hated Christianity and some think invented his psychological theories as a means of revenging against himself and his father for an insult received at the hands of some who professed faith in Christ. Some reject the gospel in favor of science. They think science will solve all the world's problems. They look to it to usher in a golden socioeconomic techno pragmatic age, despite the fact that many scientists are daggers drawn between themselves over mutually exclusive rival theories. Some hope big government will solve all their problems. Many still cling to outmoded communistic theories despite the total economic collapse of the former Soviet Union. Soviet communism crashed with startling suddenness after 75 years of fiscal insanity. It left behind utter economic and moral chaos. Even still, some hope education will provide will prove to be the answer that they need. The more secular, the better. Here's what that author was communicating. Whatever the case, we must pray that God will unveil those who are blind to the gospel. If that blindness is science, if that blindness is false religion, if that blindness is education, economics, whatever it is they're placing their faith in besides Jesus, they are in fact veiled. 
Let me show you another monster. It's the villain. This is the one we know best. The villain in the story. Look at verse 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In their case, this is what Paul reminds them of. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Listen, the veil is not the only monster of the gospel. There is also the villain. He is described in this context as the God of this world, Satan, the devil himself. His greatest trick is the lie, and he has found so many ways of lying through various false religions and beliefs. Matter of fact, I want to give you a little piece of some of the dangers that are around us. The first one that comes to mind is Mormonism. Very similar to Christianity in a lot of respects, but very much not the case. Joseph Smith found some golden plates, which would later become what we call the Book of Mormon. This book is thought to be a missing piece to the Bible. It was written in Egyptian hieroglyphics and had to be read with magic glasses that were given to Joseph from the angel Moroni. The false religion taught the practice of polygamy. And in fact, Brigham Young, one of their most famous prominent leaders, was claimed to have had 53 wives. However, trying to clean this up in recent years, one of the most startling doctrines they promote is that you can become a God yourself in the next life. Christian Science, founded by a lady named Mary Baker Eddy. They teach that pain and death are unreal errors of the mortal mind. However, kick one of them in the shins and see how much they hold to that teaching. It's interesting that she taught this because she had three husbands and she watched all of them die. She was known for always complaining about being sick. Also, to understand how foolish this teaching is, all you have to do is go down to Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and you can visit the tomb of Mary Baker Eddy. She eventually died herself. Hinduism. One of India's great problems is the millions of sacred cows that clog the city streets, yet they can't be hurt because it could be someone's reincarnated soul. They're once precious grandmothers now living out her days in that cow. That insect might be a relative or that dangerous snake might be a family member punished in their new life as a snake. Not to mention the thousands and thousands of idols made by human hands but now worshipped as gods. Now listen, there are numerous examples that we could think of. These are just a few of the many lies of the God of this world, of Satan, of the devil. Matter of fact, the great Napoleon has been quoted as saying, men will believe almost anything so long as it is not in the Bible. It's not surprising why so many stay blinded to the truth. The veil is real and so is the villain. But I want to show you one more. This monster is called the void. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, the God of this world is blinded the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's an interesting thing to realize that God has created us to have the Holy Spirit, but our sin has separated us from that presence. So since that moment, way back in Genesis, every person ever born into this world is born with a God-sized void. Now, Satan gives many options for those who are looking for something to fill that void. You can come up with as many as I can, whether it's pleasure or worldly success or money. Doesn't matter. Fill in the blank. However, there's only one who can fill the void in every life, and his name is Jesus. 
You see, the new covenant, the ministry that we now have because of the gospel brings us back to what God designed. It brings us back to a right relationship with him where his spirit is present in our lives again. Though the gospel has some monsters standing in opposition, nothing can stand in the presence of Jesus. You say, Danny, why are the contents so much more important than the container? Well, because of the ministry of the gospel, but also because of the monsters of the gospel. There is great opposition to the truth that we hold. But I want to show you another one. The message of the gospel. The message is why. The contents are so much more important than the container. Let me show you the source of the message. This is 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. It says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Can we just sit in that moment for a second? Not us, not anything else, not any other religion, not any other object that you can place in that void that only Jesus can fit. None of those things. Only Jesus. Why? Because he is Lord. Listen, there's only one answer for the monsters of the gospel. His name is Jesus. The use of the word Lord is so, so significant in this text. You say, Danny, why? Because no matter what we face in this life, no matter how strong the devil may seem, he is nothing compared to the Lord Jesus. You see, listen, the devil, he might blind, he might twist, he might trick, he might lie. He might even be deemed as the God of this world, but he is not Lord. He has no power over Jesus. There is only one who stands as the creator of it all. There's only one who defeats sin, who defeats death, who defeats the grave. There's only one who has the power to overcome it all. And he is our Lord Jesus Christ. Source of the message. Let me show you the servants of the message. Verse 5, we'll keep reading. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Listen, it's not about us, but about the one that we serve. Listen, Paul never claimed his own name or, or, or anything to be about him. It was always Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but anytime I think about all that Jesus has done for me, all I can think about in those moments is that my response should be to serve him with all that I have. What a privilege to be able to be a servant of Jesus and the message of the gospel, the, the source, the service. Let me show you this third one, the shining. I like this because it made me think of that old scary movie, but in a different context. The shining of the message. Look at verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Look at what Paul wrote again. He said, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness. That should be familiar to you. We take that all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter how dark it is. Doesn't matter how much the God of this world tries to blind. Doesn't matter about the veil or the villain or the void. God, in all of his glory, shines his light of Jesus Christ into the world. One guy put it like this He said, Paul reminds us 
of the God who commands, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined. It takes us back to the beginning. It was the beginning. In the beginning, we read that God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. This is Genesis 1, 1 through 2. Now, this condition of darkness was evidently the result of a catastrophe. You say, Danny, what do you mean? I don't know that there's anything before Genesis 1, 1. Well, I don't really either. But here's the speculation. The word for was. In other words, the earth was without form, void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The, the word therefore was can equally be translated became. It's translated that way later on. And the Lord God breathed into the nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul in Genesis 2-7. Same word. Could be was, could be became. But think about that for a moment. If it wasn't was without form and void and darkness, but became without form and void and darkness, then this changes the context of the verse. Further proof of this is not lacking. The expression without form and void renders the Hebrew word to you. It became, as the word describes, waste. It was not created that way, but became that way. The Lord might well have added an enemy hath done this. They say, Danny, why is this significant in understanding of scripture? I'm not telling you one way to think about it, but if this is true. Then it changes things. Here's what I mean. Some think that our solar system and our planet was part of the sphere of influence of Lucifer before his fall and that subsequent to his explosion from the precincts of God's throne, he wreaked his rage and resentment on our planet, creating a condition of chaos down here. He certainly has an inordinate interest in the earth, perhaps knowing something of its key position in the plans and purposes of God. And you say, Danny, was the earth different before Satan destroyed it? I have absolutely no idea. But if that word isn't was, but instead is became, then isn't it interesting to think about how from the very beginning the devil's been trying to twist and destroy? Listen, whether this theory is true or not, we have the Genesis account and we do know that the world was void and without form. It was in darkness until God spoke and brought light out of the darkness. However, we know shortly after this moment, darkness entered again when mankind chose to sin against God. Adam and Eve now must navigate life without being able to enjoy the presence of light, the presence of God. But here's the good news, right? Talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We know this is no longer the case. You say, Danny, why? Well, Jesus told us why in John chapter 8, verse 12. You ready? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus has now given the spirit back to the earth to help transform it once again as he has shown light into our hearts. You know what else is significant about this idea of the light of Jesus? I don't know if you remember this, but there was a blinding light that happened in Acts chapter nine to one particular fellow by the name of Paul. As he was on his way to destroy the church and kill more Christians, he was blinded by a light. What was it? It was Jesus changing him forever. 
Listen, he knew about the light of Jesus. The devil may blind the minds, but Jesus shines light into the hearts. Praise God for the light of Jesus shining into mine. So listen, Paul reminds us of the ministry of the gospel, the monsters of the gospel, and the message of the gospel. But I don't want you to miss this last thing that Paul reminds us about. Danny, why is the content so important, more important than the container? Well, it's really, it's really because of the mystery of the gospel. You say, Danny, what's the mystery? Well, don't forget verse 7. It's so key to what's happening here. But we have this treasure. What's the treasure? Jesus, the light that shines into the darkness. We have this treasure in jars of clay. What's the jars of clay? We are. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Listen, let me help you put this in proper perspective. Here's how one commentator writes in description of this verse. Here's, here's what he writes. God could have displayed his light through angelic beings. He could have displayed it through direct visions and dreams or even through personal divine revelation to each individual. He could have because God is bound by nothing but his own plans and promises. Yet God, for his own purposes, has decided to reveal the treasure through us. Don't miss that. Us. Some days I wake up and wonder, why God? Why us? Why me? Considering our frailties, fallenness, and outright folly, it's a fair question. Let's face it. When Paul likens us to earthly vessels or jars of clay, in some ways, he's being optimistic. Some days we're just unshaped and unattractive lumps of clay or wispy clouds of dust or stony hearts or withering grass. We should be honored and humbled in the extreme to be included in God's plan to preserve and proclaim his priceless message. Yet somehow in the process, we often forget the clay pot reality. Even in our churches, we work hard to impress each other, especially visitors. We try to handle scriptures with ease and finesse. We polish our performances to perfection. We downplay our flaws and patch up the cracks in our finish. We place our most treasured pots on display for all to see, failing to actually reveal the invaluable treasure inside. No one cares about the box or the packaging, what matters is what's inside. Think about power lines stretched all across the country. Those lines carry enormous voltage and power. The lines themselves are held in place by what we would call little clay pots. Same material Paul's talking about in this text. The pots themselves are valueless and powerless, but they serve a significant purpose. They hold the wire which transmits the power from the source of supply to the place of need. Such are we as we hold within us the most power known to man. Friends, we may be jars of clay, but we contain a treasure beyond any other treasure. Don't forget what Paul is reminding the church in Corinth and us about today. We carry the gospel to the world, the greatest treasure. It's not about the box. It's about what's inside. Friends, we have Jesus. What more purpose or value could we ever have above that?
How are you sharing the gospel? How are you sharing the good news about Jesus? Are you joining in the ministry? Are you fighting against the monsters? Are you spreading the message? Listen, the mystery is the greatest moment in this text. I don't know why God would choose us to carry this treasure. It's one of the greatest mysteries of the gospel. But he did. So how are you carrying the message? Listen, we may be jars of clay. (laughs) It's not about the container. It's about the contents. What is it that you're showing the world? 